Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. I'm so glad that y'all are here. It's good to see uh, some new faces and some uh, lots of familiar faces. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you do happen to be uh, new to us or relatively new, uh, at the end of the service, just uh, after we pray the final prayer and after I say goodbye to a few people at the door, uh, we're going to meet in the room that's right just outside these doors to my left at our, in our office for something we call Starting Point. It's a brief gathering of folks who are relatively new to our community but are sort of considering whether or not they want to make Chatham Community Church their home. So it's a brief gathering where we talk about our history, what, what it looks like to be part of Chatham Community Church. We get to connect people with other people who are relatively new and also meet a few key leaders from our community. Uh, and hopefully uh, let you know what the next steps are as you consider whether you want to make Chatham Community Church your home. So it'll be just after the service. Uh, it doesn't last long, but it's been a great place for a number of you to connect with others and, and um, sort of get a sense of what it means to move forward here in Chatham Community Church. So I invite you to join us. Uh, whether this is your first time or you've been coming for a bit, if you've not been to one of those, feel free to join us. Uh, it'll be a great time, and uh, I'll see you there. See you there. Uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I had this friend group that I saw mostly on the weekends because on the weekends I stayed at my grandparents' house and uh, most of them sort of either lived or visited their grandparents in that area as well. And we became fast friends, this group of kids and I, and we became such good friends that we started to sort of find ways to see each other during the week and we convinced our parents to help us meet up. And this group became my primary friend group. And you know, this was in middle school, so it's a very formative age. We're sort of figuring out what we like, what we don't like. And as I was integrating into this friend group, uh, we started to sort of like the same things. And so uh, I started to listen to the music they were listening to. We played the same video games, you know, stuff like that, the normal things that kids do as they integrate into a friend group at that age. Now, at the time, there was a hairstyle that was in, that was in style, and it's called the flat top. Uh, and a number of kids in the group had the flat top, and they looked cool. So I decided that I would get a flat top. Uh, I thought it would help me fit in with the group, and to a point, it did. But if you can find me there, and this won't be up for long, I did not look cool in a flat top. It was not the right haircut for me. Now, I'd love to say that I only got it once, but that would not be true. And I probably would have gotten it many, many more times. I probably would have kept getting it over and over again until my friend stopped getting a flat top, if not for my barber, who after one too many times of asking for the flat top, leaned over to me when I said, I'd like a flat top. And he said, no. <laughs> I am not going to give you that haircut. It does not look good on you. I'm going to give you a different cut. Uh, it was a difficult thing to hear. But I needed to hear it because it was true. It was one of those lessons that every kid needs to learn at some point, and probably every adult needs to be reminded of uh, once in a while, which is that the things that might help you fit in aren't always the best things for you. The things that might help you fit in aren't always the best things for you. Now, let me say there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to fit in, and there's nothing inherently wrong with caring how our actions or our behaviors impact those around us, but... What's true is that what it takes to fit in, or what we think it takes to fit in, isn't always what we need, and it isn't always what's best for us. Sometimes it's seemingly harmless, like that haircut, whose only harm is the fact that that picture is on social media. 
But other times it's more serious, and it can impact our well-being, it can impact our emotional and mental health, and it can impact those around us because it can affect how we treat them. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about inner strength and what it takes to build a resilient core, the kinds of things that we can believe, embrace, and practice that will help us face all the challenges that life brings us, the challenges that we welcome, and the challenges that come through opposition or adversity. We've been looking at the things that Scripture says are true about us and about us as a community, us as individuals and us as a community that set us up to live resilient lives because we want to build a resilient core among a resilient community so that together we can be a resilient people. Today, we're going to wrap up the initial section of this series where we've been focusing on some of the most common lies that we as individuals tend to believe, that we believe about ourselves. These are lies that can be alluring, that can be enticing, and they have some grain of truth to them, but ultimately when we believe them, when we embrace them, they weaken our core and undermine us as individuals and undermine our capacity to live resilient lives, undermine our ability to meet the challenges that come in life. Today we're going to look at the people-pleasing lie, and the people-pleasing lie tells us that our value is dependent on whether or not other people, generally, or certain specific people like us. It's to, it says that our value is dependent on when other or certain people like us. Now, having good and healthy relationships is good. Tending to those good and healthy relationships is good. It's important, considering the impact that our actions and our behavior and our words have on those around us and how they affect how people think about us or how they view us is valuable or can be valuable. But when we attach our sense of value, when we attach our sense of worth to it, what we do is we subject ourselves to the changing whims, to the changing desires, to the changing preferences of the crowd. And that, as a foundation, is quicksand. That, as a foundation, does not lead to a resilient life. We're going to illustrate that by looking at two episodes from the life of Peter, one of the early leaders in the church of the first century. We'll see what happens when we yield to the pressure from the crowd, when we yield to the people-pleasing lie, and what can help us resist it. So if you have a Bible, we're going to start in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians is one of the letters that Paul writes to the early church. If you have a Bible with you and you're looking for it, it's in the New Testament, so it'll be in the latter third of your Bible. And if you scroll through the pages or if you're looking on an app and are looking through the Bible, uh, it'll be after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, after Romans. And if you've gotten to Revelation, you've gone a bit too far. So look for that. We'll be in chapter 2 of Galatians, and we're going to start in verse 11. Like I said, the writer of this passage or the writer of this letter is the Apostle Paul. And when he mentions someone named Cephas, he's referring to Peter. Cephas is just another name that Peter went by. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen in just a second. But here we go, uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, 
You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let me set the stage for us and sort of orient us as to what's happening. This is happening in the early years of the growing or emerging Christian community, the growing church. And the church first emerged primarily among Jewish converts. So the first converts, the first people to decide to follow Jesus were primarily a Jewish community. And then it started to spread into non-Jewish and even Gentile communities. One of the tensions that they were navigating, especially as Gentiles started to become followers of Jesus, was how much of the Jewish customs the Gentiles needed to adopt in order to become followers of Jesus or in order to live as followers of Jesus and what types of practices the community as a whole was going to retain from their time as Jews. And there was tension because there were groups of people who were saying, They have to become Jews first, and particularly they have to be circumcised first in order to then become followers of Jesus. And because of beliefs like that, they believed or they thought that if a Christian ate with a Gentile convert who had not become Jewish first, then that Christian was unclean, was disobeying God, was not following the way of Jesus correctly because in their understanding, when Jews and Gentiles shared the table together, broke bread together, uh, the things that Gentiles used were unclean and therefore made the Jews that participated in that meal unclean. And being clean or unclean was the equivalent of saying you are good before God or you are not good before God. So this was a tension that they were navigating early in the church. And though very early on, it became evident that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews and that there were a limited number of things that they were going to ask the Gentiles to adopt, there remained factions that were consistently pushing for greater and greater adherence to Jewish customs and trying to sway sway opinion towards this idea that you had to be Jewish first in order to then become a follower of Jesus. Antioch, where this passage takes place, had become a hub of Gentile Christian communities and Jewish Christians joining in with them. And Peter has left Jerusalem and has joined the Christians in Antioch to see what's going on, to see what God is doing, and to celebrate with them among Gentile and Jewish Christians. And after Peter comes, up comes from Jerusalem a delegation of Christians from what was known then as the circumcision group. These were hardline Judaizers, hardline people who thought, no, you have to become Jewish. And they've come to this place likely to push their idea, their belief, that these Gentile Christians needed to become Jews. And when Peter sees them, and Peter sees that they're now among this community, it seems like he feels some pressure. And in order to get on their good side, he removes himself from eating with the Gentiles. And he starts eating exclusively with the Jewish Christians. He pulls away from the Gentile Christians. He stops breaking bread with them. He stops spending time with them. And then as Peter, who is a leader in the early church, does that, other Jewish Christians in the community follow suit. And they remove themselves from among the Gentile Christians. And they start to create these two factions, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. It's so strong, Peter's influence is so strong that even Barnabas, who at that point was a leader in that local church along with Paul, gets swayed and pulls away from the Gentile Christians. Maybe as that's happening, rumblings or mumblings start to emerge, to boil up 
about maybe needing to talk to the Gentile Christians about being circumcised, about maybe needing to talk to the Gentile Christians about adopting Jewish customs if there is going to be a Christian community, if they are going to fully participate. They are starting to create a tiered system of Christianity. What had been a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to break down historic divisions among peoples would have been a beautiful picture of the reconciling effect of the cross and resurrection of Jesus has now turned into division, has now turned into othering, has now turned into sort of tearing people where some are more important and better than others, all because Peter seems to have wanted to please these folks that came up from the circumcision group. Peter has believed the people-pleasing lie. And it's affected not only his own core strength, but it's affected the community. Not, though, not just the Jews that have followed suit with him, but the Gentiles who have been left out in the cold. See, the people-pleasing lie causes us to compromise our integrity. It leads those that follow us astray. And sometimes, depending on the context, it may hurt those that don't fit in. This is a crucial time in the early church. The things that get established now as they're figuring out what it means to be followers of Jesus are going to have ripple effects on the church that emerges after this. They're going to have ripple effects centuries on. They're going to set the tone for what the church will be. Setting a strong foundation now will be key to building a resilient people. In fact, the foundations they set then are the foundations that churches like this one, communities like this one, are built on. So it was key to get this right. And rather than resist the pressure from the this, from this circumcision group, rather than even push back on the pressure, Peter caves. And what had been a strong foundation in that community becomes quicksand. The health and survival of this community is at stake in this moment, all because Peter has given in to the people-pleasing lie. And the thing is, Peter knows that this is quicksand. Peter knows that. That's why when Paul confronts him, he frames what Peter is doing as hypocrisy. Because Peter is not just going along. Peter is betraying a conviction. Peter was in Jerusalem when the first Gentile Christians came to faith. Peter was part of understanding what it meant to welcome the Gentiles into the faith. Peter knew. They knew that there was no strength in this argument that the Gentiles needed to become Jews. He's betraying a conviction that was born from experience. That's how strong the pull of people-pleasing can be. It can lead us to betray even convictions that are solid, that seem solid in us. Convictions that are not just things that we've heard, but things that we've lived, things that we've experienced in our very bones. The people-pleasing lie can be that alluring, that tempting. When we buy into the people-pleasing lie, it cuts out our convictions from under us because it is looking to replace them with whatever pleases whoever we're trying to please. That's what it says the foundation of value it is. is. It, it looks to replace our convictions with whatever the people we are seeking to please want. There's this movie called The Help. It's based on a book, and it tells the story 
of uh, black domestic workers in the 1960s South, and it sort of show, shows the racism that they faced even as the civil rights movement was taking place. There's a scene where one of the main antagonists, a woman named Hilly, is at another woman's home. The woman's name is Elizabeth. And she's at her home berating Elizabeth's domestic worker, a woman named Abilene. And as Hilly is berating Abilene, she is lying, she is threatening, she is being aggressive. And because of the context, because of what was going on in the country, because of the situation they were in, Abilene has no power. She can say nothing. She just has to take it. But you get these moments in the midst of the conversation, in the midst of that scene, where a look flashes on Elizabeth's face. And part of it is captured in the image that's on the screen. She knows that what's happening isn't right. She knows that what Hilly is doing isn't right. She knows that what Hilly is saying are lies. She knows that the way she's approaching it is not good, but she doesn't say a thing. Why? Because it's more important for her to stay on Hilly's good side. Because she's believed the people-pleasing lie. And you can tell in these scenes that she is sacrificing conviction and decency for the sake of the people-pleasing lie. And that kind of look is not one that's limited just to movies like The Help. You see it in other movies, you see it on TV, and in fact, I'd, I'd wager that if we carried around a mirror with us, we would see it on our own faces from time to time. It's a mixture of a sad realization that we lack some courage of conviction and shame that we've given so much power to what someone or some group thinks of us. That's what that look is. It isn't just that people-pleasing lies lead us to compromise our conviction. It isn't just that they affect the community. It isn't just that they affect other people outside of the community. It isn't that they, just that they lead us to treat people poorly. It's that in addition to that, when we realize that we've given in to the people-pleasing lie, when we become aware that those things have happened, that we've compromised our convictions, that we've affected the community, that we've treated other people poorly, the people-pleasing lie will try to trap us in a cycle of shame. It will tell us that there's no other recourse now, that we've gone too far, that now we are indefinitely entangled in pleasing these people if we're going to have a sense of value or worth. But that's a lie. That is a lie. There is always an opportunity to reorient our sense of value and our sense of worth to something that is permanent, to something that is steadfast, to something that is steady, to something that is good and noble and trustworthy. Our convictions can always be fortified. Our integrity can always be restored. Genuine repentance and humility can help us reorient those we've led astray, hurts that we've caused can be healed. Relationships that we've broken can be restored. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is stronger not just than the people-pleasing lie. It is stronger than the shame, than the shame that the people-pleasing lie brings that tries to trap us in a never-ending cycle of trying to please and please and please. And Peter has experienced that power before. 
part of the reason Paul confronts Peter so strongly in this passage is because Peter has been at the forefront of welcoming the Gentile Christians into the community, of not requiring them to adopt Jewish customs. He had stood up to pressure in the past. He had stood firm. He had not given in. And yet he yields here. Let's take a look at the time when he stood firm. We're going to be in Acts 11. Uh, we're going to read just a few verses. You don't have to look at it. We're going to put it. We're going to look it up. We're going to put it on the screen. Here it goes. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. That sounds a little bit familiar, right? And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I'm not going to read the story Peter tells them, but I'm going to retell it. What he tells them is that he's had a series of, he, goes, he has a series of encounters with God. He has dreams, he has visions, he has conversations with God. And those conversations lead him to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius, who was seeking after God. And even though Peter, all along the way, is resistant to the idea of entering this Gentile man's home, of having a meal with him, the Lord keeps telling him to do it. The Lord keeps telling him that he's up to something, to go, that God was at work. So finally, he goes. He goes to Cornelius' house. He goes in. And as he starts to talk, not just to Cornelius, but to all the folks gathered at Cornelius' house, here's what happened. As I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Before Antioch, the passage that we read from Galatians, Peter had been in Jerusalem and he had encountered resistance to the idea that the Gentiles could be welcomed without becoming Jews. He had, he had encountered that resistance, and he had faced it. He had faced it down without giving in to the people-pleasing lie. What made the difference? What helped Peter resist the allure of the people-pleasing lie? What might help us resist the allure of the people-pleasing lie? The first is to anchor ourselves in God's story. Peter situates himself within the story that God is writing in the first century, within what God is doing, rather than within the narrative that his critics are telling. His critics are saying a narrative that uh, if these Gentiles are going to become Christians, they have to become Jewish first. And to eat in the home of a Gentile Christian is to become unclean. That's the story they're telling. But Peter doesn't situate himself in their story. Peter situates himself in the story that God is telling. The story that God is telling, not just about the Gentile Christians, but about him, but about Peter and the other people. Peter situates himself in that story. He's letting God be the author. Not just of their story, but of his story. He's letting God be the author, the one who dictates where the story goes, rather than what people want in the demands of this circumcision group. What story are you anchored in? When you think about your life and the choices you make, 
the preferences that you have, the convictions that you keep, the lines of thought that you follow, the way you do things, whose expectation of what comes next are you trying to meet? Whose voice is in your head telling you this is how you ought to live? This is what you ought to believe. This is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to behave. Whose voice is in your head? Now, the voice may not be a bad one. The voice may not even be a bullying one. But if it's any other voice than God's, it's just an imperfect one. It's an imperfect one. It wasn't made to give you your sense of value or worth. And if you try to live up to that voice to gain your sense of value or worth, you will come up empty every time. You will come up lacking. Even though Peter doesn't understand what God is doing in this part of the story initially, he's willing to stay in the story. He's willing to follow along with it because he's clear on whose story he's anchored in. Next thing he does is he acknowledges and attends to God's work in him. When Peter tells the story, he talks about the resistance he has. See, just like that circumcision group or those, those Christians who wanted um, Gentiles to become Jews, Peter was a good Jewish man. And at that point, he still believed that Gentiles needed to become Jews. He was not sure what to do with that. So he's got this resistance to going to Cornelius' house. He says, it will make me unclean. God has to meet him multiple times, but he engages in the work God is doing in him. He engages in what God is, uh, God is up to. The fact that he engages God over and over again has given him clarity, has given him confidence, so that when the criticism comes, he can stand firm because he can say, I thought like you did, but I attended to what God was doing, and he's changed me. It's what helps him resist in that moment because he's dealt with the pressure internally. When the external pressure comes, he's already dealt with it internally. So it helps him resist. Ongoing connection to God is crucial. Attention to God's work in us, acknowledgement of God's work in us is crucial to resisting the people-pleasing lie because the people-pleasing lie is going to come up over and over and over and over again. We will be invited consistently throughout our lives to let what other people want, what other people think, what other people say is good, dictate what we do and where we gain our sense of value and worth. Lastly, in order to resist the people-pleasing lie, Peter remembers what God says. What God says to him and what God says about them. For us to resist the people-pleasing lie, it's crucial that we remember what God says to us and what God says about us. Peter recalls the words of Jesus and remembers or recognizes the work of the Holy Spirit in him, but also around him. It's because he remembers the work of the Spirit in him and he recognizes that the Spirit is doing something similar in the Gentiles that he's able to say, this must be the right thing. This must be the way to go. These are the things that have proven true and Peter clings to them. And here's the thing. When Peter resists the people-pleasing lie, the fruit is rejoicing. The fruit is praise. The people who were putting pressure become convinced 
But these Gentile Christians don't need to become Jews. There is celebration. It's very different than how it turns out in Antioch when Peter gives in to the people-pleasing lie. The people-pleasing lie is one we can chase our whole lives, but it's one that's increasingly difficult to hold on to because what will please people is inconsistent. People are fickle. Their whims change. Their preferences change. But what God has said about us is solid. What God has said about us is consistent. What God has said about us is steadfast. It endures. It is something we can hang on to and hold on to because it never changes. Last week, we said that whatever you agree with, you give power to in your life. If you agree with the truth, then as Scripture tells us, the truth will set you free. If you agree with lies, lies will enslave you because you will always be chasing after them to see if they deliver the thing that they promise, but they can never. They can never deliver. They can never deliver our sense of value and worth. The people-pleasing lie is a never-ending pursuit, and it will keep us bound to the chase. And some of us are like, oh yeah, I like a good challenge, I like a chase, but do you want a chase with a sense of hollowness, with a sense of lack of value? That is unfulfilling. When we agree with the people-pleasing lie, what gets left in our wake is hurt people, broken community, and in our compromised integrity, we are less resilient. We are weaker. We cannot endure and stand before the challenges that life brings us. This is a sad life. And we were made for more. We were made for more. Today, we can choose something different. Today, we can choose to agree with the truth of our value in Christ. I've said this every week in our series, and I'm going to say it again. The issue of our value was established at creation. You and I were made in the image of God. That makes us incredibly valuable. God fashioned us. We have inherent value and worth. If that's not enough, the issue of our value was settled at the cross. Before we did anything, before we accomplished a single thing, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to win that. God did it because we were valuable, and we are valuable to him. God saves us, and the issue of our value will be reaffirmed at the last things. Through eternity, we get to enjoy in the, as co-inheritors with Jesus in the glory that comes for all time. God would not give us that. God would not invite us into that if we were not valuable. Not dependent on whether people like us, not dependent on what we accomplish, not dependent on what we obtain or control, but dependent on what God says and who God is and the fact that God has chosen to love us. The statements of our worth are true of everyone in equal degree. They are not more true of some than of others. They are equally true of all of us. We are in on equal footing in the hands of the God that created us, at the foot of the one who saved us, and in the hopes of the promise of what is to come that will be fulfilled through eternity. That never changes. And that gives us a strong and resilient core. 
And when we agree with the truth, when we develop that strong and resilient core, people are blessed. Communities flourish, and we are more resilient. We're able to meet the challenges that life comes for us. What orients us in life is not whether people like us, but the truth of who God made us to be. It isn't that we're never going to take others into account when we decide what to do or how to be. But we do so not out of a desire to gain our sense of value, our worth. We do so out of the freedom of a worth and value that is secure, that is steadfast, that is strong, and that is resilient. Today, we're going to take communion together. We're going to take communion together in that freedom that we have as equals that no one that joins the communion table is responsible for giving us our value and our worth. The one that gives us our value, our worth, is the one that welcomes us to the table. So we don't need to look to anyone else to give us our value and our worth. The one who welcomes us at the table gives it. As we come to the table, today I want to extend an invitation to be freed from the lies. Be freed from the lies of where our value and worth come from. Not just the people-pleasing lie, which we talked about today, but the lie of performance, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that says that the more you do or the more you accomplish, the more important you are. Not just that one, but even the lie of accumulation and control that says that the more we have or the more we obtain, the more valuable we are, the more important we are. You may have been here last week. You may have been here the week before. This may be your first week here. God has been doing something in our community. It's possible that as you've been wrestling, as you've been engaging with the sermons, as you've been even sitting here today, there is a sense that you've given yourself to one or more of these lies in small or large ways. There is an invitation today for freedom. For freedom to reject the lies, to resist the lies, and to receive the truth so that we can enjoy the table as people whose value is secure, as people who have a resilient core. Here's how we're going to do that this morning. I've invited some folks to join us as people who will pray with and for us. If you are one of those prayer people, I want to invite you to come take a seat in the front row in one of the, uh, either the wings, the center, or um, either one of the wings or the center. Um, And uh, here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to, in a moment, give us instructions on how to take communion. As you come up for communion, if you feel like one of those lies of your value or your worth has a hold on you, or you want to renounce it, maybe you simply want to refresh the truth of who God says you are, go ahead and sit in one of these rows. Sit in one of these front rows as you come up for communion. And one of our prayer people will come and pray for you. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe they need to pray with you. Maybe they just need to pray for you, whatever you need. Here's what I don't want. I don't want you to leave here with any doubt of where your value is, of where your worth comes from. I want you freed. God wants us to be free in his truth. So if there's any shadow of doubt, come and sit. Get prayer. Experience freedom. God wants that for us. Here's how we're going to do communion. Um, The first of the month, we invite everyone who's following Jesus, the first Sunday of the month, everyone who's following Jesus to partake in the Lord's table with us. I have uh, asked some people to host these tables. If you are a host, would you come to the tables uh, now? 
I asked you to host one of the tables. We've got two in the front and one in the back. The worship team is going to come play us a song in just a moment after I pray. And while the song is playing, you're going to come up and you're going to grab one of the gluten-free crackers, either come up or come back there, uh, one of the gluten-free crackers and one of the glasses of grape juice, and you're going to take it back to your seat. If you want to get prayer, you can get the stuff and then sit and get prayer. You can sit first and then come get the stuff. It's fine. We're not going to lead communion until we've finished praying for people. Uh, but while the worship team is playing, while you're getting your stuff, just go sit and wait and reflect. And then at the appropriate time, I'll come and I'll lead us in taking of the elements together. So once again, uh, I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. You'll come and get your elements and or you'll sit and get some prayer and you'll experience some amazing freedom. And then we'll take communion together. Let me pray. Gracious God. Thank you that the issue of our value is secure. Thank you, Lord, that the issue of our value and our worth is not subject to the whims of the crowd. Because even good people in a crowd are not a strong, resilient, durable source for our worth and value. Thank you that you made us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you have promises for us that tell us we are we have worth and value. Lord, right now, if any of us is bound to a lie, would you call us to freedom? Because it is for freedom that you have set us free. Lord, if anyone needs to come and sit for prayer to experience that truth, to be freed from that lie, may they have no fear or shame. We silence the voice of shame in Jesus' name. May they know that what you welcome with is celebration and gladness not with condemnation. And Lord, and if there's anyone that needs prayer for anything else, may they know that there is grace to come get it, that you have something special for them. Lord, as we are released to the table, as we come to the table, may we come as equals before you, as people who are loved. Welcome to the table of the one who gave his life to free us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once the worship team starts playing, you can come get the elements and come get prayer.